Hello and welcome. This is the What If I Told You podcast, a show that is here now to entertain you. Sorry about that. Mm. <laughs> um, and if you didn't get the reference, you're just fuck off, please. Yeah. I mean, horde. Yeah. I mean, you've read the title of the episode. You just heard that. If you're not making the connection, um, this episode isn't for you. Yeah. And also, I'd like to speak to your parents, because this is probably their fault. Did you see that TikTok I sent you? No. It was like this boss walking into one of his employees' cubicles, and she was wearing a Nirvana t-shirt, and he was like, I'll give you $100 if you name this song. And it was fucking Smells Like Teen Spirit, and she was just like, I don't know. Yeah. It's real sad and disappointing, and I don't even know her. See, even for people who are not Nirvana fans, are not grunge fans, odds are they probably know that song. Well, yeah, and see, I've noticed with Nirvana and Blink-182 logos... Oh, right. That's they why are people similar. Yeah, that's why people are buying the fucking t-shirts because they look vintagey. Especially Nirvana. Cuz you can right. go to into any store and there's going to be a Nirvana shirt. That yes, there will be. Yeah. Kohl's, you know. <sighs> Listen, it's you real guys, sad. I hate to be an elitist, but don't wear a band t-shirt if you don't know and like the band. Why are you doing that? Yeah, that would be like if I walked around with a, I don't know, a sports team shirt on and I know nothing about it. That's even less weird, though. Yeah. You can rock a sports team shirt and people are just going to assume you're from that place. Right. You know, I have a Chiefs shirt that I only bought because we... When we worked at the court, we had, I don't know what. Red Friday? Sure. (laughs) And so I got a t-shirt for that purpose specifically, but do I watch the Chiefs game? No. Do I know any Chiefs players? Aside from two of them? No. Yeah, there's a Chiefs game happening right now. I know, Dakota has it on, but he's also scrolling TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) See, that, and he... Usually has the game on. That's how unentertaining football is. Yeah. Someone who watches the game every week still has to have secondary entertainment. I just can't. I can't do it. It's not who I am. No. Everyone gives me shit for it, but... Sorry. I don't want to watch sports. No. I don't want to watch three hours. Right. Of three second long plays. And then a whole bunch of standing around? No. Fun. Absolutely not. Fun. I would much rather watch basketball. At least they're constantly running. I can't with the squeaky noises. Okay, yeah. The noise is really annoying. But, (laughs) I mean, action-wise, they're always... They're moving. They're moving around always. Yeah. That at least... And I think the games are shorter as well. I wouldn't know. I have no idea, actually. It has to be shorter. It has to be shorter. You could watch a fucking... You could watch, I don't know, anything, and it is shorter than a football game. 
That is true. You could watch Gangs of New York. You could watch fucking Titanic. You could actually watch the full Titanic. Yeah. In both. Isn't, isn't there three VHSs or two? Two. Two, yeah. You could watch both VHSs. I could probably read an entire book in that time if it was yeah. short enough, you know? Yeah, like 100%. Uh, this book right here. This uh, book of poems. Yeah. Fierce Fairy Tales by Nikita Gill. I could read that entire thing and the football game would still be occurring. Yeah. And then there's overtime that sometimes happens. Fuck. No. That's a whole day. That is your whole day. It's the worst. Anyways, moving on. If the government ever gets a hold of this, they will certainly know how to torture me for information. Dude, we oh. love football. I'm going to straight up give that info up. <laughs> it makes me think of a clockwork orange. At some part in the book, they like tape these people's eyeballs open and make them watch like continuous footage of like really terrible things. <laughs> no. That is what it makes me think of. Just tape my eyeballs open and make me watch like football games on a loop. I could watch anything else. I think I would go actually insane. Probably. I mean, I feel like long enough of anything like that, not just football, but yeah. anything, you probably would lose it, but Oh, for sure. Do they come I I need to ask somebody who's like a scholar on a clockwork orange. Did they come around and just like put eye drops in their eyes? They had to have. Had to have. They would have dried out. Yeah. And then you can't see anymore. Right. Okay. Anyway. We figured that out. Boom. We're problem solvers. Um, let's see. It's 2.20 on a Sunday. I hate Sundays. Sundays are the worst day. Yeah. Just full, full-fledged depression. <laughs> the worst uh i am off for the entire week of thanksgiving so i'm like anxiously anticipating what's next Friday. week isn't it yeah dude. holy shit bro i know dude i haven't had a proper mashed potato in a long time what like some with like gravy I i'm still in shock i don't i don't make i make mashed potatoes but i don't make gravy really yeah i'll just make like cheesy garlicky mashed potatoes if i do I I usually always make a gravy. I've the only gravy I can make is fucking sausage gravy for biscuits and gravy. This exact same concept just But you know. see like at Thanksgiving mom uses like the turkey drippings to make gravy. Mm -hmm. So when that is not in the picture, the gravy just doesn't taste as good. Yeah, it does. Oh uh, well, I don't know. You can make it. I've made it before, but I was just like, meh. You have to, you just have to have the right ingredients to make it. You don't need, like, bacon grease or sausage yeah. grease or, you know, whatever. I'll try to whip up a gravy this week. How about that? Yeah. Just get yourself some bouillon, garlic, butter. It'll be good. Oh, a little I'm bit of beef hungry. stock. Damn. It'll be good. Um, yeah, I make, well, I don't all the time because we get hella fresh, but... Um, last week, Dakota, he, we are hosting his family for Thanksgiving. So he was practicing smoking a turkey mm -hmm. last was Saturday or something. And, um, 
since he was practically, what are we going to do with a whole turkey? So I was like, you know what? We should have just full turkey dinner. Mm. So I made mashed potatoes, gravy, stuffing, rolls, and turkey. Fuck, that sounds good as shit. (laughs) It was fucking good, dude. I need that. Well, I'm going to get that soon. Yeah, because it's almost Thanksgiving. I have four Thanksgivings to go to. I only just have one. I wish I only had one to go to, but, you know, on Thanksgiving, going to my grandma's. On the day after Thanksgiving, my dad's. The Saturday after Thanksgiving is when we're hosting here. And then Dakota's mom, I have no idea what day. It's occurring someday. It could be Sunday, which makes me want to fight someone. Ice pick my eyeball, but yeah, just because it's Sunday. Yeah, I don't like doing shit on Sundays. Being here is the extent of what I will do on a Sunday. Yeah, this is as active as I want to be on a Sunday. Yeah, I don't want to have to get dressed, and I don't want to go anywhere. Uh, yeah, I've always just had one Thanksgiving to go to. Literally always. Really? Yeah. Damn. I just have too many branches of family. Even whenever I was young and didn't have, like, a partner's family to add into the equation. There was still... There was still, like, my mom's side of the family and my dad's side of the family. And even then, like, with my mom, we would do, like, my mom's family and Dillard's family. And then we would have my dad's. So even when I was a child three Thanksgivings and then Dakota's parents are divorced. So now we have four, sometimes five factoring in Dillard's family, but they don't always do one. (laughs) So Christmas is the exact same dude. I've also usually just had one Christmas to go to. Yep. We always have four Christmases. That's too much. It's and, all, well, usually we also have a friend Christmas at some, like, the second week in December with Brad and Amanda and um, Brandon and Krista and Cody and Shannon. Mm-hmm. So we do that Christmas, and then we have all of our family Christmas. <sighs> I'm feeling stressed. The holidays are never relaxed. I'm feeling stressed. This is why I took the entire week of Thanksgiving off and the entire week between Christmas and New Year because I was like... I never do that. I've never done it. Even when I worked at the court and you have 5,000 hours of vacation time. I'm never going to be able to take a day off ever again in my life. Yeah. That was the literally the only good thing about working at the court. Yeah. it. I think part of it was they give you so much PTO because they can't pay you a lot. So yeah. they, they're like, we'll make up for it and give you a lot of days off. Although we're going to give you so much work that if you take a day off, it's going to just make the day you come back even worse. So then you don't want to take any days off, which is why I never did the whole, like the whole week of Thanksgiving, the whole week of Christmas. I never did that because when I had to take two weeks off to have surgery, it took me a month to get ready to be off for two weeks. Yeah. And when I got back, I was still behind. The fuck, dude? It's wild, bro. I made $14 an hour. 
And I had to prepare for a month to be off for two weeks and still be behind. Government, come the fuck on. Anyway. that's, That's crazy. I know. That was... And I even came back probably too early. Like, I remember the first, like, three days I came back after surgery and I was like, I'm dying. Yeah. For sure I'm dying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I couldn't, like, lift my arms. Goddamn, dude. Yeah. It was stupid. Anyway, so that, I guess that was the food nook. <laughs> uh, yeah. We're done. We've got to start this shit. Okay. Hanging on by a thread. So, yeah. Um, obviously we were gone for a couple of weeks. Um, hey, shit happens. Yeah. Sorry about it. You know, it's that time of the year. People are fucking busy. Yeah. And we did seven episodes in four weeks. Yeah. So fuck right off. Come on, dude. I mean, we deserved it. We deserved it. And we're going to try not to disappear like we did last year during the holidays. So... Yeah. We'd also deserved that, okay? Yeah. We live busy lives. We really do. It may not seem like it. It may seem like all we do is talk shit and eat Taco Bell, but... I fucking wish that was my life. Dude. Can you imagine? We're trying to get there. One day... If I would have won the $2 billion lottery, that's literally all I would do for the rest of my life. Yeah. Eat Taco Bell. Yeah. And talk... (laughs) Mad shit. To everyone. I mean, passerby. Don't even know them. Yeah, hey, fuck you. Yeah, talking shit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you want to run through the Delphi update real quick? Yeah. All right, so, um, we had, we recorded an episode. One of the weeks we missed was technical difficulties out of our control, and we had talked about the update in the Delphi case. Well, since we don't get to use that audio, I was going to say footage, but there's it's audio. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk about it now. So, obviously, we did make multiple Instagram posts about the update, but we're going to do a little detailed update on here. So, of course, as everyone knows, there was an arrest made in the murders of Abby and Libby. On Friday, October 28th, this man's name is Richard Allen, and he's 50 years old. And he's also been officially charged with two counts of murder in regards to Abby and Libby. Yeah. The fuck? Right. Um, Now, he was a resident of Delphi. He had been a resident for a couple of years prior to the murders, and is a resident all the way up to the day of his arrest. So he's been literally living in the tiny town of Delphi this whole fucking time. That's so fucked. Oh my, that is fucking insane. He's just, yeah, I don't know, man. That's wild. The whole thing's wild. It's giving very Dennis Rader BTK. Dude. Straight up. He's just been watching this whole time. Literally, there. So on, he worked at the CVS in Delphi. On the sliding windows of Delphi, are the posters of Abby and Libby, and the sketches of Bridge Guy. Bro. That's. 
That's sad. That's so fucked up. Literally every day that dude went to work. And looked at their faces. And then looked at the sketch of him. Mm-hmm. And there's also, like, photos floating around on the internet of him sitting at a bar, literally with the sketch of Bridge Guy behind him. What? And I just have to, like, this guy does look like that sketch. It's yeah. not identical, obviously. Well, no sketches. Yeah. But if you look at the sketch of the guy that has the hat on. Yeah. I was like, dude, that, that does look like him. Of course, yeah. he looks like any middle-aged, middle-aged white man. dude. Yeah. And that sketch also looks like any middle-aged white dude. But still. <sighs> Oof. Anyway, um, this man also, he is married and does have children. So, there's that. Um, but literally the only thing we know is that he's been charged with two counts of murder. He's pled not guilty and requested a public defender. Um, we have no idea what led the police to arrest him. Right. We have no idea what evidence they have. The, uh, all of the charging documents have been sealed officially by the court. It has to be some shit, dude. There has, of course, it's very, very unprecedented to have charging documents in a criminal case sealed because that is supposed to be a public record. Right. And you should be able to get a copy of the probable cause statement, of the warrant, of any search warrants. You should be able to see everything, especially once the warrant has been served. Mm -hmm. That's just common practice in most states and is in Indiana, but for some reason they have sealed these documents. So, at the press conference on October 31st, the authorities did ask for people to continue to submit tips whether or not they involve Richard Allen. Well. And that the case is still an active investigation. So, most people speculate that this kind of means that This guy is not the only suspect. And it makes me think that there is some evidence in the PC statement and the warrant that implicate someone else. Maybe. Or that a tip came from someone else. That scared the fuck out of me. I was (laughs) like, uh... Right. So, my theory speculation fully is that there is a possibility that Richard Allen knew and was colluding with Kagan Klein. He has to be somewhere in this. There is absolutely no way Kagan Klein is not involved. Yeah. In my eyes. It's just too, it would be too weird if he wasn't. It wouldn't make any sense if he wasn't. That kind of coincidence is never a coincidence. No. I'm sorry, but it is not. No. And we know that Kagan Klein is in custody on 30 counts of possessing child pornography, soliciting, and all of that 
horrible stuff. We know that he had talked to Libby on the day of their murder. Yeah. And that a lot of his charges in his case that have nothing to do with Delphi involve him trying to get girls to meet him. Yep. Please, someone, tell me that that is not in connection with Abby and Libby. Yeah. No way they. No way he can't be involved. No way. So hopefully news. We hopefully the charging documents are released soon, so we can actually understand what led them to Richard Allen. Because he's not been on the radar for anyone. Mm-hmm. Like I've uh, listened to a couple of updates, like the Murder Sheet podcast, the Down the Hill podcast, and True Crime Garage, and none of them have ever even heard this guy's name mentioned. Yeah. And these are, like, investigative journalists who do a lot more than (laughs) we do. Right. So. Yeah, he came out of nowhere, dude. Fucking came out of nowhere. All right. So, now that we've updated you on that, we're going to get to the topic of the day. Emily might pass away before the end of this episode, but. Yeah, I have a fucking terrible headache. We will carry on valiantly. Yeah. My eyes are still open so far. Yeah. Barely. Sort of. Do you want me to turn the light off? Would that help no, you? No, no. I mean, it's fine. Oh. What happened? I just kept hearing clicking. And I wasn't clicking. Oh, cool. <laughs> cool. <laughs> oh, no. Do you want to announce her? You want to start us off here? Yeah, so today... um. Obviously, we're talking about one of the coolest dudes in history, Kurt Cobain. Mm. Um, it's widely accepted that Kurt committed suicide, um, but there's some out there that think that uh, his suicide was staged to actually cover up his murder. Mm-hmm. And I feel like with any famous person that, quote-unquote, took their own life, it's a possibility that they did not. Yes. Because there's always going to be someone with a motive. Absolutely. Yep. Um, I think it's very clear that we love Kurt and we love Nirvana. And if you don't, that's kind of lame of you. Super lame. Give me your top ten reasons why. Right. <laughs> like, how can you sit there and listen and still not like it? I know. It's like the perfect blend of... Everything. Torture, tortured poetic lyrics, but also, like, a catchy hook. They're all, like, a, a bop for sure. They're every single one of them. Yeah. Every single Nirvana song is a straight banger. 100%. Absolutely. I mean, and also, if we wouldn't have had Nirvana, then we also would not have ever gotten to know Dave Grohl. We wouldn't have the Foo Fighters without Nirvana. We can't start talking about Dave, because then we'll never start on the episode. I know. Dave Grohl's the coolest fucking dude on the earth. He really is. God damn, that dude is cool. All right, so... Kurt Cobain was obviously a musician. Um, He was... Oh my gosh, I thought I was going to hiccup. He was the guitarist and lead vocalist of Nirvana. Um, He 
wrote songs that were angsty and anti-establishment, and he was a lover of punk rock. Mm-hmm. Um, he's largely considered to be one of the most influential musicians in history, particularly in the alternative punk rock genre, of <laughs> course. Clearly. Yeah. So we're going to start off by talking about his early life and then move on to his career later and then Nirvana. Yeah. All right. So Kurt was born at Grace Harbor Hospital in Aberdeen, Washington, February 20th, 1967. So he is the same age as Angel would have been. She was also... 1967. That really wasn't that long ago. I know. He wouldn't really be that old. No, almost 55? 55, yeah. That's not old. That's not old. Nah. That's like, you know, you're probably kind of in the prime of your life if you played your cards right. Honestly. I mean, like, money-wise, you're probably you're probably, probably chilling. You're enjoying yourself. Yes. You're just kind of starting to enjoy yourself. Right. So you're... Doing it right. Yeah. Yeah. This is uh, peak relaxation in life. Right. Cool. Um, his mother's name was Wendy. She was a waitress. And his father's name was Donald. And he was a mechanic. He also had a younger sister named Kim. She was three years younger than he was. Most of Kurt's family had a musical background. His uncle Chuck played in a band called Beachcombers. His Aunt Mary played guitar and performed in bands throughout Grays Harbor County. And his great-uncle Delbert, fucking cool-ass name, had a, a career as an Irish tenor, which is a singer. Right. In case anyone didn't know. And he made an appearance in the 1930 film King of Jazz. Well, that's cool. Kurt was described as a happy and excitable child who um, also was on the sensitive and caring side, which I think is probably because he was an artist. Yeah. He was talented as an artist from an early age, and he would draw his favorite characters, such as Donald Duck and the creature from the Black Lagoon. His grandmother, Iris, actually encouraged him in his art because she was herself an artist. So from both of his parents' families, we have musicians, we have artists, He was destined to be a creative. So according to Kurt's Aunt Mary, he began to sing at age two and learning to play piano at age four. But then when he was nine years old, his parents got divorced. And his mom later said that the divorce changed his personality dramatically and he became increasingly defiant and withdrawn. Kurt would talk about the divorce himself and the profound effect that it had on him. In a 1993 interview, he said that he felt ashamed of his parents and that he desperately wanted to have the, quote, typical family. I wanted that security, so I resented my my parents for quite a few years because of that. Oh, poor little Kurt. That sucks. It does suck. I mean, I guess some people take it really hard. Yeah. I didn't. I don't know. I guess. I feel like it depends on how the parents handle it. Oh, for sure. My parents, as much as they fucking hate each other, 
the divorce was never hard on my brother and I. Yeah. And we had good step parents. So. That makes a difference. Yeah. It just never, never impacted us negatively. Well, me. I don't, can't speak for my brother, but. Yeah. Generally speaking, his life troubles didn't happen until he was an adult and created them himself. (laughs) Um, So both Kurt's parents would eventually, obviously, move on with new partners. His dad married a woman named Jenny. Jenny had two kids uh, named Mindy and James. Kurt seemed to like Jenny at first because she gave him the kind of motherly affection that he craved. And um, that seemed to be kind of a nuclear family. There was his dad, his dad's wife, who was kind of like, you know, the maternal element, and then the kids. So his craving for the secular traditional family was there. Right. And he got a lot of attention from Jenny. But then his father and Jenny had another child in 1979 and his name was Chad. And at this point, Kurt felt a sense of resentment towards Jenny because her attention obviously was focused on the new baby and he was jealous. Yeah. That happens a lot. It happens. So during all of this, Kurt's mom also became involved with a man who was abusive to her. It didn't say anything about uh, the man being abusive to Kurt So that's unclear, but he was physically abusive to Wendy and Kurt would witness numerous instances of physical altercations and she was even hospitalized with, I believe, a broken wrist or broken arm Oof! as a result of that and, but she refused to press charges, which happens. And this probably led or at least contributed to Kurt acting out in school and even bullying another child at school, which is really out of character. Um, and his dad and stepmom were like, uh, what do we do with this kid? Yeah. So they did take him to therapy who concluded that his behavior was a reaction to the divorce and that he would be better off in a single family household. It, that's the most useless piece of advice ever. Yeah. That really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. No. I mean, the divorce has already happened. Yeah. you. D- the The dad the, has already remarried. The damage is done. Yeah. At this point, that's not helpful. Right. Please give some advice that is. Yeah. That's the dumbest. Anyway. So by June of 1979, Kurt's mother actually gave full custody of him to his dad. And then Kurt just rebelled, rebelled, rebelled. And this increase in rebellion was just too much for his dad, and he would send him to live with some family friends named the Reeds. Cool. They were were devoutly Christian. And while living with the Reeds, Kurt himself became pretty devout and would attend regular church services, but then would reject the religion. And allegedly the song Lithium was written about his time living with the Reed family. Uh, Even though he rejected 
Christianity as an institution, he did have his own set of spiritual beliefs, kind of a grab bag from tenets of Judaism, uh, Jainism, Buddhism, and some Christianity. So he kind of Damn. gave a, himself a little mashup. That's there. a variety. <laughs> it's a full variety. So, yeah. Well, wow. that's like his early and adoles- early adolescence. Yeah. Um, through art and electronics classes. Cool. Kurt met Roger Osborne, uh, who was nicknamed Buzz, who was the singer and guitarist of the Melvins, who is also, well, the Melvins, like, aren't popular, popular, Mm -hmm. but if you're like a, if you're like a grunge punk music person, you know who the Melvins are. Yeah, they're kind of like, they're an underground, you know, they're still underground but there's like still a band they tour they put out albums like they're still active out here yeah like i couldn't sit here and name a melvin song for you but i've listened to them yeah you know i have absent i've spent a lot of time researching particularly for this episode just because it's of interest so in the last probably three weeks four weeks I've been listening to the Melvins a little bit. Yeah. You know. You know, like, honestly, in the genre of, I mean, Nirvana is so much different than a lot of your, like, alternative grungy punk bands. Yeah. But there's so many underrated bands that are kind of in that category. Yeah. Heavily underrated bands. I think once you... Obviously, Nirvana is basically a class of their own. Yeah, and everyone knows them. And then you have probably second to Nirvana would be Alice in Chains. I I would say. Yeah. Some might say Pearl Jam. Some might say Soundgarden. But I am saying Alice in Chains. Yeah. I think they sound most similar to Nirvana. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, Lane Staley does have a very unique voice. And that makes him s- them sound different from Nirvana, but their overall sound is most like them. Right. So, but then, you know, any other grunge bands, people ju- people simply do not know other grunge bands. That, exactly. Um, so, Kurt became friends with Buzz, and uh, Buzz is who kind of introduced him to punk and hardcore music. So, thank goodness for Buzz. What up, Buzz? And so when Kurt was a teenager living in Montesano, Washington, he eventually found an escape through the thriving Pacific Northwest punk scene, which sounds badass. Hell yeah. And he went to a lot of punk shows in Seattle. During his second year in high school, Kurt moved back in with his mother in Aberdeen. And two weeks prior to graduation, he dropped out of Aberdeen High School um, realizing that he didn't have enough credits to graduate anyways. And his mom gave him a choice, either get a job or leave. Uh, so after one week, Kurt found his clothes and other belongings packed away in boxes. You know, I think at this time that didn't seem extreme. 
It was probably kind of normal for parents to be like, you're an adult. If you're not going to be in school and you're not going to have a job, then you're not going to live here. Right. But now when I think about an 18 year old or even 17, he was probably 18 because uh, his birthday is February. But like that seems it's a little cold. That seems incredibly cold. Yeah. And and I just think about like my parents, they would never kick me out. If I didn't have somewhere to stay. Yeah. That's true. Well, some parents are just tough love parents. I feel like that is not tough love. Tough love is like, you're going to do chores around this house if you're not going to have a job. Or I'm going to drive you to this interview and make you get a job. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Tough love is not making your child homeless. It is. I could never do that to one of my children. Yeah. Unless they were just like the fucking worst. It would make sense if they, if, like, they had, if they were selling drugs out of your house. Right. If they're out here, like, constantly committing fucking crime and endangering the household. Stealing from you. Yeah. Like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. And that, grow that, up. That make that would make sense. But simply not having a job does not, that's not enough. No. That's not enough. It's your child. It's not your boyfriend. Correct. So if your boyfriend doesn't have a job, kick him out. <laughs> kick him like, straight out. Straight the fuck out. Uh so you know, Kurt felt very banished from his own home. <laughs> Clearly. Dude, I am losing so much hair. It just doesn't stop. I shed a lot too. It's probably because I ne- I really need to get my hair cut. Mm-hmm. Like when was the last time you washed your hair though? Literally today. Well, I know, but before today. Oh, um, Thursday? I mean, you're supposed to lose about a hundred strands of hair per day, just generally. Yeah. And when you don't wash your hair every day, it that gets, builds up in your scalp. stuck. That makes so sense. So you're looking at... 600 strands of hair. Yes. I um, wash my hair once a week, so can you imagine what is shedding out totally of my scary. hair? It's totally scary. It's it's fucked, dude. <laughs> um, so Kurt felt, you know, banished from his house. He was staying with friends and he would occasionally sneak back into his mom's basement. And he claimed that during periods of homelessness, he lived under a bridge over the Wishka River. And. Oh, I lost my place. Which was an experience that inspired the song Something in the Way. Great fucking song. His future bandmate, I don't know how to say his last name. Novoselic. Yeah. Is it Christ? It's Christ. Chris Novoselic later said, he hung out there, but you couldn't live on those muddy banks with the tides coming, coming up and down. That was his own revisionism. I think that Kurt did have a tendency to romanticize some things. Oh, for sure. It's really clear. And I, I think that's that's an artist thing. Yeah. Most artists do have an element of romanticizing their suffering. Yeah, like Anthony Kiedis romanticizing of course. heroin. Of course. <laughs> so. there, and people, I think people confuse romanticizing that and encouraging. Yeah. It is not the same. No. Kurt is not saying, hey, you should go live under a bridge for a while. Right. He is simply romanticizing his own experience. Right. 
Anthony Kiedis, he is not saying you should develop a heroin addiction. No. He's just romanticizing his own. Okay? <laughs> it's different, people. It is different. It is different. <laughs> and I have, I have heard people talk about Anthony Kiedis. They're like, this... Why is he making this sound like he wants everybody to be addicted to heroin? No, and... Like, he's not. He isn't. No. Stop being such a dunce. Um, yeah, I fuck, I love Anthony Kiedis. In late 1986, Kurt moved into an apartment, paying his rent by working at the Polynesian Resort, which was a themed resort on the Pacific Coast at Ocean Shores, Washington, approximately 20 miles west of Aberdeen. And during this period, he traveled frequently to Olympia, Washington, to go to rock concerts. Yep. Adorbs. I mean, that's what everybody wants to be doing when they're, you know, 18, 19. Absolutely. Okay, so his career. First, we'll talk about some early projects-ish. Um, so on his 14th birthday in 1981... Kurt's uncle offered to give him either a bike or a guitar, and Kurt chose the guitar, obviously. And he taught himself to play Stairway to Heaven and Louie Louie, Another One Bites the Dust, My Best Friend's Girl, obviously tons of classics. And then once he kind of mastered the guitar, he started to write his own songs. He did play left-handed, uh, even though he wrote right-handed, which is a school thing. I don't think they do it anymore, but back in the day, they would make children write right-handed, even if they were left-handed. Yeah. Which is fucked, first of all. They did it to my brother. He was ambidextrous, and his kindergarten teacher would not let him write with his left hand. My mom was pissed and threw a goddamn fit. So at the weird. school. <laughs> yeah. But he does some, like, random things he'll do left-handed. Like, yeah. shoot a bow, he shoots left-handed. I'm pretty sure Jameson is ambidextrous. Because mm-hmm. I've seen him write with both hands. Yeah. And I'm just like, figure it out, man. I You know. And people think of being ambidextrous as, like, uh, really rare. But I think it's probably more common. It's just that people, like, our age were trained out of it. Right. In kindergarten. Yeah. We could have easily just picked one, probably, as a child. Probably. And that's probably that way for everyone. Yeah. Exactly. But when, even when you're sitting at home and <clears throat> your mom is showing you how to write your name, you just naturally put the pencil in their right hand. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Instead of, like, offering the pencil and letting them pick it up. Right. Sure. <clears throat> Dang. Um, so in early 1985, Kurt formed the band Fecal Matter. Um, this was just after he had dropped out of high school. And this was one of, uh, apparently he started several joke bands (laughs) that kind of came out of the circle of friends that were associated with the, the Melvins. Um, Fecal Matter initially featured Kurt singing and playing guitar, uh, Dale Grover, Dale Crover playing bass. He actually was the drummer for the Melvins, but he played bass in Fecal Matter. And Greg Hokinson playing drums. They spent several months rehearsing original material and covers. 
They covered songs by the Ramones, Led Zeppelin, and Hendrix. They disbanded in 1986, but the Melvins would go on to continue as a band and are still today. Their debut EP is called Six Songs. So, well, those are his early projects. They don't really amount to anything, really, but... No. Eh, you know. Allegedly, uh, Kurt wanted to join the Melvins. I think they probably already had all of their members. And, you know, it's kind of a thing. Like, the Melvins is a three-piece band. Nirvana was a three-piece band. I think I don't know if that was, like, a thing. They just wanted guitar, bass, drums. It is kind of, like, a simple thing. Yeah. A lot of punk bands are three-piece. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um... But he was obviously not in the Melvins. Right. So he created Nirvana. There is a fucking fruit fly in here (laughs) that I've tried to, like, punch out of the air. And it is just not giving up. Okay. How long have we been recording? 47 minutes. Fuck around. Goddamn. Yeah. She's going to be a long one. During high school, Kurt rarely found anyone um, that he could play music with uh, while hanging out at the Melvin's practice space. He met Chris um, and Chris' Chris's mom owned a hair salon and the pair occasionally practiced um, in the upstairs room of the salon. That's adorable. That's so cute. <laughs> A few years later, Kurt tried to convince Chris to form a band with him by lending him a copy of a home demo recorded by Fecal Matter. And after months of asking, Chris, Chris was like, yeah, dude, let's, yeah, that's, that's great. Let's do it. And, um, this was the beginnings of Nirvana. Religion appeared to be appeared to remain a significant muse to Kurt during this time, as he often used Christian imagery in his work, and developed a budding interest in Jainism and Buddhist philosophy. The band name Nirvana was actually taken from a Buddhist concept, which Kurt described as freedom from pain, suffering, and the external world. Uh, a concept that he aligned with the punk rock ethos and ideology. So that's pretty fucking cool. Yep. Kurt was disenchanted after early touring due to the band's inability to draw substantial crowds and the difficulty of sustaining themselves. During their first few years playing together, um, they were hosts to a rotating list of drummers, and eventually the band settled on Chad Channing, with whom Nirvana recorded the album Bleach. Um, which was released on Sub Pop Records in 1989. Kurt, however, became dissatisfied with Channing's style and fired him. (laughs) He and Chris eventually hired Dave Grohl to replace Channing, (laughs) and Dave helped the band record their 1991 major major label debut, Nevermind, um, which had the lead single, Smells Like Teen Spirit, Nirvana quickly entered the mainstream, popular, popularizing the subgenre of alternative rock called grunge. And since their debut, Nirvana has sold over 28 million albums in the United States alone and over 75 million worldwide. 
which is wild to think about as they only released three studio albums. Yes. Uh, the success of Nevermind provided numerous Seattle bands such as Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, um, and access to wider audiences. As a result, alternative rock became a dominant genre on radio and music TV in the U.S. during the first half of the 1990s. Nirvana was considered the flagship band of Generation X, and Kurt found himself reluctantly anointed by the media as a as the generation's spokesman. He absolutely hated it. <laughs> I, yeah. Um, let's see. So their major albums were Bleach in 89, Nevermind in 91, which is like the Nirvana album. Yeah. In Utero in 1993, and there are many other albums in their disco- I can't ever say this word, discography, including the Unplugged album. Um, well, and you just said that earlier, so. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, there's only the three major studio albums that they released during their very short time yep. of being a band. Mm-hmm. Nirvana shares an interestingly similar... Similarity with another legendary timeless band, the Beatles, um, because the Beatles only existed for a handful of years also. It doesn't ever seem like that when you think of bands like Nirvana and the Beatles. I know. Uh, The Beatles were a band from 1962 to 1970. Yeah, that's not a long time at all. Yeah, and you usually when you think of one of the probably the most well-known and influential bands of all time you say the beatles absolutely and they were a band for less than a decade yeah yeah that's so wild it's insane um when you think of the largeness of their impact on every genre of music in comparison to how short they existed. Obviously it makes you wonder how anyone could not appreciate them. Yeah. Cause I mean, Nirvana was a band from 19, well, <laughs> 1989 to 1994. Yeah. That's, that's no. fucking crazy. No, it, t- now it takes bands that long to put out an album. It does. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, so, in some media and by some critics, it's been said that Nirvana wouldn't have really been long-lasting even if Kurt wouldn't have died, which is honestly kind of bullshit, I feel like. Yeah. Um, I keep losing my spot. Um, and it's said that their continued success and popularity is due in large part to the spectacle of Kurt's addiction and suicide and that it occurred at the height of Nirvana's fame, which I mean, it did occur at the height of their fame kind of, but well, yeah, it definitely, uh, it, it definitely occurred at the height of their fame, but that's still not. I, it, I don't think, 
I don't think that his addiction and suicide is the reason that you could go anywhere right now today and find a Nirvana t-shirt. No. No, absolutely not. That's so fucked. Yeah, I've heard that said so... I've seen it in so many articles that the only reason that Nirvana is still popular is because Kurt killed himself. Mm -mm. And I'm like, get the fuck out of here. I don't think... I mean, I don't feel like there's people that jumped on the Nirvana wagon just because Kurt died. I know. I don't know what they base that opinion on. Because even now, us being... Us... Once we got old enough to form opinions about the music we liked, you know, people listen to Nirvana now because they like it. Not because, like, hey, I heard this dude offed himself. We should like this music. Yeah. And I think part of it... I think is the concept of Nirvana Nirvana ended before it had time to fade away. Yeah. Which, I mean, you don't have to fade away, you know? Like, look at fucking Rush. Rush is still touring and putting out albums they have like 60 studio albums that's that should that's ridiculous getty lee is out here looking like the fourth sanderson sister still fucking out here killing it you know that's silly (laughs) yeah People are, I think, because Nirvana is so beloved by so many people that you have those contrarians who just want to say, Nirvana sucks. The only reason people like him is because of the spectacle. Yeah. Kurt sucked. He was a narcissist. The only reason he was popular is because he was tortured and killed himself. That doesn't make any sense. No. People just want to be contrary, and it's annoying. Okay, so Kurt had obviously relationships with people, but the only one we're really going to talk about is Courtney Love, and you knew this was coming. So, of course, there are differing accounts of how and when Kurt and Courtney met, none of which do we really care about. Um... Some say they met as early as 1989. Other people are like, no, they didn't actually meet until 1991, which seems weird that the differ the difference is two years. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. Either way, they did meet and eventually got married not that long after they met. Um, Courtney was actually the pursuer. Uh, she... Talking to Dave, found out that they had similar interests, and so she began pursuing Kurt. And in late 91, they were officially a couple bonding over music and drug use. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, For any who don't know, Courtney Love fronted the grunge band Hole. I've actually never listened to Hole. No. It is 
they are listed. Like, if you look up a list of, like, influential grunge bands, they are on the list. But do I want to give Courtney Love the time of day? No. No. So, on February 24th, 1992, after Nirvana finished their Pacific Rim tour, Kurt and Courtney got married in Hawaii. Um, Courtney wore a dress, and Kurt wore a Guatemalan purse and green pajamas. Seems pretty on brand. <laughs> uh, there were eight people at the ceremony, including Dave. Um, Love has said that she was warned by the bassist of Sonic Youth, Kim Gordon, that marrying Kurt would destroy her life. And she responded, whatever, I love him. I want to be with him. It isn't his fault. <laughs> okay, that's fucking weird. Um, the couple had a daughter. Her name is Frances Bean. And she was born August 18, 1992. A sonogram of Frances Bean is actually included in the artwork for the single Lithium. Aww. Cute and weird. Because, <laughs> you know, Lithium is drugs. In 1992, in a Vanity Fair article, Courtney Love admitted to a drug binge with Kurt in the early weeks of her pregnancy. At the time, she claimed that Vanity Fair had misquoted her, but later admitting to the heroin use before finding out she was pregnant. Um, the couple were asked by the press if Francis was addicted to drugs at birth, and the L.A. County Department of Child Services even visited their home and uh, took them to court, stating that their drug use made them unfit parents. Well, whoa, kind of true, though. Well, it is kind of true. You can't be out here bragging to a magazine that you had a heroin binge <laughs> while you're pregnant. Even no. if you did it, just keep that to yourself. Keep it to yourself. There's, yeah, there's just some things you shouldn't share with anyone, let alone a media source. Exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. So throughout most of his life, Kurt suffered from chronic bronchitis and intense physical pain due to an undiagnosed chronic stomach condition. There it is. There's a little fucking fly in front of him. I don't have a fly slaughter. <laughs> According to the Telegraph, Kurt also suffered from depression. Are you all shocked? I am. His cousin brought attention to the family history of suicide, mental illness, and alcoholism, noting that two of her uncles had died by suicide. Um, so there's that. He used drugs heavily. His first quote-unquote drug experience was with weed in 1980 at age 13. That's very normal. Mm -hmm. He regularly smoked weed in adulthood also. Normal. Um, Kurt also had a period of consuming um, notable amounts of LSD <laughs> as observed by an early girlfriend and he was also prone to alcoholism. He's a musician. All of this yes. makes complete sense. It all makes so much sense. Um, yeah, I mean, that's not very red flaggy. I mean, fucking taking a bunch of LSD is certainly not a great thing to be doing. He's also, like, in his, er like, early 20s. Yeah. I mean... Of course that's what he's doing. Of course that's what he's doing. Um, especially as a musician. 
Right. Right. Um, now, his bandmate, Chris, said that Kurt was getting, this is a quote, was really into getting fucked up. Drugs, acid, any kind of drug. Kurt first tried heroin. In 1986, with his drug dealer in Tacoma, Washington, and he used it sporadically for a few years, but by the end of 1990, he had developed an addiction. Which, honestly, four years to actually develop the addiction to heroin, that's a long time. That is a long time for anything. That's very intentional. Yeah. Because you always hear about people trying heroin, like, once or twice, and they're fucking hooked. Yeah. Mm. So. So gross. Uh, heroin is so... Kids, don't do heroin, please. Please, for the love of God, do it, not do heroin. That is a life decision. Yeah. You will fuck your whole life up. Fuck everything up. According to Kurt, he wanted to form the habit as a way to self-medicate his painful stomach condition. He said, it started with three days in a row of doing heroin, and I don't have a stomach pain. That was such a relief. I feel like maybe smoke more weed. Yeah. Yeah. However, his longtime friend Buzz disputes this, saying that his stomach pain was likely caused by his heroin use. And Buzz said he made it up for sympathy, and so he could use use it as an excuse to stay loaded. Of course he was vomiting. That's what people on heroin do. They vomit. It's called vomiting with a smile on your face. All right. However, nope, I just read that. An interesting tidbit about Kurt's stomach illness is that in an interview in 1993, he discusses how his doctors were finally able to find a medication that resolved the pain. And at the time of that particular interview, he had been free of the stomach pain for around a year. So, he may have begun heroin because of the opiate relief, because the opiate relieved his stomach pain, um, but hasn't his stomach always fucking hurt since being a child? Um, yes. Yeah. So, like, Buzz saying his stomach pain was probably caused by his heroin use. Mm -hmm. Anyways. Yeah. I don't know. But it's, if it was simply the heroin, why consult the doctors? Why, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Um, so this is important because some people say that one of the reasons Kurt killed himself was because of his chronic pain. But it doesn't really make sense if the pain hadn't been an issue for almost two years when he died. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. His heroin addiction, of course, began to affect the band. During a 1992 photo shoot with Michael Levine, he fell asleep several times, having used heroin before the photo shoot. Kurt told biographer Michael... Azarad. Azarad. Quote, they're not going to be able to tell me to stop, so I really don't care. Obviously, to them, it was like practicing witchcraft or something. They didn't know anything about it, so they thought that any second I was going to die. People do have that idea of, like, heroin addicts. Well, I mean... Yeah, it's fucking scary. The data's there. Yeah. 
The morning after the band's performance on Saturday Night Live in 1992, Kurt experienced his first near-death overdose after injecting heroin that, uh, and Courtney resuscitated him. That's terrifying. Yeah. Prior to a performance at the New Music Seminar in New York City on July 23rd, oh my god, my ankle hurts, 1993, Kurt suffered another overdose. And rather than calling for an ambulance, uh, Courtney Love injected him with, I don't know how to say that. Naloxin. Naloxin to resuscitate him. Kurt proceeded to perform with Nirvana, giving the public no indication that anything had just happened. I mean, that's what you do when you're a musician. That's fucking showbiz. (laughs) The show must go on. An interesting note about this incident is that, according to the biography by Michael Azarad, is that what I said earlier? Yeah. Mm -hmm. The performance was amazing, and Kurt appeared as if nothing was wrong. Certainly. Well, the show must go on. All right, so we have come all the way up to his death. Okay, so... Following a tour stop at Terminal Terminal Enos in Munich, Germany, on March 1st of 94, Kurt was diagnosed with bronchitis and severe laryngitis. So he flew to Rome the next day for medical treatment, and Courtney joined him in Rome on March 3rd. The next morning, Courtney awoke to find that Kurt had overdosed on a combination of champagne and rohypnol, and he was rushed to the hospital and was unconscious for the rest of the day. He was in the hospital for five days and then was released and returned home to Seattle. Courtney would later say that this incident was Kurt's first suicide attempt. Now, it should be noted that the Italian doctor who treated Kurt ruled this an accidental overdose aggravated by mixing the prescription drug Rohypnol with alcohol. No heroin was involved in this incident, and the rohypnol had been prescribed to treat the bronchitis and laryngitis, I think. Now, the incident is only referred to as a suicide attempt by Courtney and the media after Kurt's death. So whenever it's reported right after it happened, it was reported as an accidental overdose in the media and by the doctor. So... Just keep that in your pocket. On March 18th, Courtney called the Seattle police to inform them that Kurt was suicidal and had locked himself in a bathroom with a gun. Police arrived and confiscated several guns from the home and a bottle of pills from Kurt, who insisted he was not suicidal and had locked himself in the room to hide from Courtney. It Hmm. should, should be noted that when police arrived on the scene... Kurt was in the bathroom and opened the door for them immediately and that he didn't actually have a gun with him in the bathroom. Hmm. So if he had locked himself in the bathroom with no gun, it certainly seems as if he was actually trying to get away from Courtney. (laughs) So, um, this information is in the book Love and Death by Max Wallace and Ian Halpern. They're investigative journalists and wrote two books about Kurt's death and contain that he was murdered. Contend that he was murdered. Um, so 
After this, Courtney arranged an intervention regarding Kurt's drug use on March 25th. Ten people were involved, and they included musician friends, record company execs, and one of Kurt's closest friends, Dylan Carlson. Obviously, Kurt was not happy with this and was scornful and pissed at all the participants. He locked himself in their upstairs bedroom. He did, in the end, agree to go to a detox program. So, um, most of the reason that Kurt was so mad during the intervention is because several of the participants, including Courtney and Dylan Carlson, were active heroin addicts at the time. (laughs) And he felt that they were being pretty hypocritical. Well, that is pretty hypocritical. Indeed it is. Yeah. You can't be telling someone don't use heroin when you, in fact, are high on heroin. Right. (laughs) So, Kurt arrived at the Exodus Recovery Center in L.A. on March 30th. Staff members were not aware that he had a history of depression or alleged suicide attempts. He was visited by friends, and they saw no indication that he was in a negative state of mind. He spent the day talking to counselors and playing with Francis. This time with Francis at the rehab center was the last time he saw his daughter. The following night, which would have been April 1st, Kurt walked outside to have a cigarette and instead climbed the six-foot-high fence and left the facility. (laughs) He caught a cab to L.A. airport and flew to Seattle. That is quite the escape. That is a that's a fucking feat. He climbed yeah. a six foot fence and then flew uh, <laughs> somewhere else. Just caught a flight. Dude was fucking out of here. He sat by Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses on the flight. So, wh- how the fuck does that happen? <laughs> You're just on an airplane and there's Kurt Cobain and Duff McKagan. Oh yeah, just unplanned. Chilling. Yeah. Weird. So, pretty much no one knew that Kurt had left the facility or where he was. He was fucking MIA. On April 2nd and 3rd, people did see him around Seattle. And on April 3rd, Courtney hired private investigator Tom Grant to find Kurt. Um, He was not seen really after that day. After April 3rd, there are no reports of seeing him. On April 7th, there were rumors floating around that Nirvana had broken up because they had pulled out of the Lollapalooza Festival. On April 8th, Kurt's body was discovered in the greenhouse of his Lake Washington home by an electrician named Gary Smith, who had arrived to install a security system. He, Gary Smith reported to have seen a small amount of blood coming out of Kurt's ear. But he said that there were no visible signs of trauma. And he initially thought that Kurt was asleep until he saw the shotgun pointing at his chin. Hmm. A suicide note was found. A quote-unquote suicide note. Right. Was found um, and addressed to Kurt's childhood imaginary friend, Boda. And it stated that Kurt had not felt the excitement of listening to as well as creating music along with really writing for too many years now. 
A high concentration of heroin and traces of diazepam were also found in his body. Um, although conductor David Woodard had built a dream machine for Cobain, reports that he had been using the device excessively in the days leading up to a suicide are contradicted by later findings. I don't know what the dream machine has to do with anything, but I think it's kind of like the 1994 equivalent of a white noise machine. Yeah. Um, so when we say that Kurt had a high concentration of heroin in his system, we actually mean that he had three times the lethal dose for heavy users in his system. So he had about 1.52 milligrams per liter of blood of heroin in his system. The lethal dose for heavy users is between 0.35 and 0.6 milligrams per liter of blood. That's fucking crazy. And that's for heavy users. Yeah. So, of course, he's dead. Right. Well, this also comes up later. Um, Kurt's body had been there, had obviously been there for several days, and the coroner's report estimated that he died on April 5th at the age of 27. That is exactly one week before the day I was born. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Obviously, there's conspiracy theories. (laughs) First up is that the PI hired by Courtney, Tom, uh, so he was hired to find Kurt after he left rehab, and he believes that Kurt was murdered. And Grant specifically thinks that Courtney was involved, which is kind of crazy because he was hired by her to figure out what happened. Right. Um, it was initially reported that Kurt's mom, Wendy, had filed a missing persons report stating that the Nirvana front man had a shotgun and maybe suicidal. But according to Grant, the PI, it was actually Courtney who had filed the missing persons report in Wendy's name. Which is really fucking weird. It's super weird because it's his fucking wife. Yeah. Why would you file it under your husband's mother's name? Yeah. Just file it under your own. Yeah. It's, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. It's, um, oh, let's see. So Grant used this information as part of his overall summary of events, hinting that Courtney was being elusive about Kurt early on in the investigation. There are several reasons why Grant thinks that Kurt was murdered, but at the core of his reasoning lies the belief that Kurt couldn't have injected himself with such a large amount of heroin. And then be able to shoot himself. Grant believes that even a heroin addict would have been incapacitated and unable to pick up a gun. Right. A shotgun. Yeah. Which is actually in the documentary Soaked in Bleach, which is incredibly biased because it is a documentary pretty much sanctioned by Tom Grant. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing is like just giving you all these pieces that kind of point to Kurt being murdered. So you have to take it with a grain of salt, obviously. But there are a lot, most doctors and like medical examiners do agree that the amount of heroin in Kurt's system would have made any heavy heroin user 
unconscious almost immediately. It had, yeah, absolutely. Especially if it was injected. Yeah. Because that goes straight to your bloodstream. Straight, instantly. So the odds of him having that level of heroin in the system and then been able to position a shotgun, which is much more cumbersome and difficult to operate than a handgun, yeah, to position it and then also pull the trigger. Highly unlikely. Right. Um, another reason why Grant thinks that Kurt was murdered is because of, of the inconsistencies in his suicide note. Grant thinks that the top half of Kurt's letter was meant to announce that he intended to leave the music business. But since the bottom half of the note has different content and it mentions Courtney and their daughter, Frances, he thinks it could have been written by someone else. Yeah. And there's inconsistencies in the handwriting, um, which is pointed out by um, Kurt's attorney, Rosemary Carroll. Um, She was the one who thought the bottom of the note was forged. Uh, She thought that it could have been... um, It could have been done by the nanny. His name was Callie, and he was actually in the main part of the house during all of the days that Kurt was dead in the greenhouse. So it's alleged or speculated that maybe Callie wrote the end of the note um, because they also found in Courtney's backpack like a little key, Mm -hmm. like a piece of paper with a bunch of different letters written on it. As if maybe someone got Kurt's journals, copied it was practicing letters, and was practicing how to write in his handwriting. Damn, dude. Well, that's fucking... That's wild. Weird. So that exists. There's a photo of that that floats around as well, along with the suicide note, so you can kind of, like, see. Certain linguists um, talk about that in The Love and Death novel yeah fucking weird there was also a dude named eldon hoke uh nicknamed el duce (laughs) who came forward and claimed that courtney actually offered him fifty thousand dollars to kill kurt um it's worth noting that hoke was also like trying to promote his career his music career Mm. but eerily just Days after being interviewed about Kurt in 1997, Eldon Hoke was found dead after being run over by a train. That's a little suspicious. That is suspicious as fuck. Yeah. Um, one other, one of the other aspects that come into Tom Grant's theory that I didn't actually put in here, but I have in my notes here, is that, um... According to Kurt's attorney, Rosemary Carroll, on March 1st of 94, um, Kurt actually called Rosemary to request that Courtney be removed from his will. Hmm. So, um, two days later, two days after he requested to have Courtney removed from his will, was the Rome accidental overdose. And 
There was also a rumor that Kurt was wanting to file for divorce, in which case the prenuptial agreement between Kurt and Courtney would have left her with a small settlement. But because Kurt died while they were still married, Mm -hmm. Courtney now receives royalties from every dime Nirvana makes. So any ro- and Kurt got 75% of the writing royalties on all of Nirvana's stuff. So now Courtney Love gets 75% of Nirvana royalties. That's so fucked. Yeah, which is why Dave and Chris fucking hate Courtney. Oh, well, of course. So it is a little suspicious that just a few weeks before he dies, he wanted to remove her from his will file for divorce, thus leaving Courtney with virtually nothing. But because he died, she's a rich bitch. Right. And gets royalties on that 75 million album sale number. Yeah. I mean, I... Just saying. You know. Just saying. Okay. But you know what? The police of Seattle... They dispute Tom Grant's murder claim. Um, in 2014, the Seattle police decided to review the Kurt Cobain case around the 20th anniversary of his death. How novel of you. Um, after looking through all the evidence, Detective Mike Szynski publicly disputed the theory that Kurt was murdered. Cool. In 2019, he offered some more details, claiming that the evidence still shows that Kurt Cobain died by suicide. Here is a quote from Szynski himself. Did I find any earth-shattering evidence that would change the medical examiner's conclusion that Kurt committed suicide? End quote. And then he goes on to say, no, in fact, I found evidence strengthening that finding. What a man. Um... It should be noted that Seattle police allowed Kurt's remains to be cremated six days after his death. Six. Hmm. And that they waited 30 days to process the gun for fingerprints. So his body is already cremated whenever they process for fingerprints. Cool. They allowed the greenhouse crime scene to be torn down. Completely. Also cool. Yeah. And when they did process the gun for fingerprints, they found none. Not even Kurt's fingerprints. Hmm. Very cool. And the medical examiner declared Kurt's death a suicide before performing the autopsy. While Kurt's body was still at the scene, he declared it. A suicide. Oh my god. Uh, The police report that declared his death by suicide was completed the day his body was found. I just need you to know right now, if I'm ever found dead and there's a gun near me, I did not do it myself. Yeah. Don't let those bitches tell you otherwise. Don't let them cremate me. Yeah. They didn't investigate his death at, At all. all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so th- this is this is what Mike Szynski, that last name is difficult. This is what he says about why the evidence strengthened the suicide 
ruling. He says, I located the receipt of the purchased shotgun shells from a Seattle gun store that matched the time and location where a cab driver said he dropped off a male matching Kurt Cobain's description after picking him up from the Cobain residence. Also, when I had questions about the positioning of the shotgun found in his hand, the location of the spent shell casing, I interviewed an experienced weapons armor who explained the dynamics of what likely occurred. Now, in reference to the receipt of the shotgun and the shotgun shells, the gun in question is actually registered to Dylan Carlson, his friend, and not Kurt himself. And it was purchased on March 30th, and was stated that it was purchased because there had been previous attempts at breaking into Kurt's house, and he bought the shotgun as a form of protection. But he didn't buy it. David, Dylan Carlson did. So that's that's evidence, I'd, I'd say. Wow. <laughs> cool. Cool, 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 cool. Um... Szynski spoke to one of the original case detectives who said that Courtney Love had been very cooperative during the investigation and a lot of work had been done on the case. Of course. Sure. Um, an interesting thing about the way that the shotgun was positioned, they like, go through this. So it's like, so the gun, the butt of the gun went between Kurt's legs and the barrel of the gun pointing obviously to his head. Right. With the, it was upside down. So the trigger was up. And his left hand was gripped around the barrel of the gun. Mm -hmm. So there's this sort of like spasm that happens during death. So it made him clutch the barrel of the gun as opposed to like it Just, shooting and falling off. Yeah. So his left hand is clutching the barrel of the gun. And his right hand would have obviously been the one to pull the trigger. Right. Well, the shell casing was to his left, but because of where the little department on the gun that would expend the shell casing, on Soaked in Bleach, they say the shell casing should have been to his right, but it was to his left. So the explanation that Szynski is talking about is that the armorer had said that the gun could have been right side up, and that would mean that the part of the gun that would dispel the, sh the shell casing would indeed have been pointing to the left. And that when he pulled it, the, like, reaction and it flipped the, power, it around. the power of the gun would have flipped it upside down. I simply don't believe that. How fucking insane does that sound? That does not make... No. No. Because here's the thing, here's the thing, when you are alive and shooting a gun, you're gonna have, okay, if Kurt really did shoot himself, mm -hmm. he pretty much had almost the same grip on this gun as you would, minus some shoulder support. Right. So when you shoot a gun, you don't think, I better fucking hold on to this for dear life so it doesn't do a 180 turn in my hands. Yes. That, that is the theory that they're going with to explain why the shell casing was on the wrong side of his body. No, it's on the wrong side of his body because someone else shot him. And then put the fucking gun in his hands. Yeah. So what they, on Soaked in Bleach, what they say, 
because his the way his grip is on the gun, the way that they said he had to have been holding the barrel of the gun when he died because of the like muscle spasms that happen in that involuntary clinch of the gun. So at the time of death, he had to have been holding the barrel of the gun. He could have been holding it because someone he made... went to like there's so many explanations why he could have been holding it when he died. Yeah. So it ju- the idea of it flipping around after he pulled the trigger is comical to it, me. Yeah, that's first fucking, of all. that's a reach. That's such a reach. I don't believe a gun guy would say that. That what to me that screams I'm making the evidence fit my conclusion. Yes. 100%. Not, not, I am looking at the evidence to see what happened. So they've already decided this is a suicide. And so anything that comes up, they're going to try and make it fit that conclusion. Instead of investigating this and seeing what happened. And dude was probably fully unconscious from the heroin at this point anyway. Well, right. <laughs> it's it's hard enough. Okay, not like I know this, but I feel like it's hard enough to, for one, choose a shotgun to kill yourself with. Right. And be laying down, shooting yourself in the chin throat area with it, right? Yeah. It's awkward. It's long. It's not a natural way to, like, try to, you know. Yeah. I mean, and then with fucking having enough heroin in your system to fucking kill, kill everyone elephant, in this county. Yeah, I don't. Whatever. It's. Moving on. Yeah, it just simply. It, that explanation I'm just not buying. No. Okay. I'm just not, so. If you are, weren't. If you all weren't clear about how we felt about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so. But, you know, people close to him, people in the band, accept the suicide ruling. Yeah, whatever. I know. Whatever makes them sleep better at night. Sure. <laughs> sure. Um. Okay. So... Chris and Dave, like Maddie just said, except that he did commit suicide. Um, even though they both hate Courtney. Yeah. Neither of them have accused her or anyone else of murdering Kurt. And in 2014, Courtney Love actually ended her longtime feud with the two of them. Not really sure what transpired there, but... Yeah. Um... Dave Grohl has, of course, fielded questions about Kurt since his death. He actually only knew Kurt for, like, three and a half years, but in that sort of band environment, they were, of course, really close. And Dave has said that sometimes you just can't save some someone from themselves, obviously. Yeah. Especially with heroin users. Exactly. Um, obviously, watching someone like Dave Grohl of all people talk about Kurt is very sad Mm -hmm. and he still gets emotional talking about it. And now fucking, now he fucking lost his, oh my God. I know. God, I'm going to cry. Whenever they did like the tribute performance to Taylor, 
and his Taylor's son, son played drums. Heart shattered. Literal. That was the saddest I've felt in a really long time. <laughs> so incredibly sad. What also made me equally as sad is the instant I like heard that Taylor had died. My first thought was, "Is Dave okay? <laughs> what What's up with Dave? First Kurt, and now Taylor. Yeah, two bandmates. He was with Taylor much longer because Foo Fighters obviously have been around for fucking twenty years. Yeah, and if you don't like Foo Fighters, fuck you. Just stop it right now. Just <sighs> fucking <sighs> no. I just really want to like hug Dave. He's he's kind of an angel. He really is. Like, how can you not like him? I know he's just he's so precious. He's so cool. When you like watching interviews with him, he's just fucking cool. He seems like if you went over to his house, like he would like make dinner for everyone, ask if you needed like a drink. Yeah, you know. Yeah, he would be like, "What kind of music do you want me to turn on?" Yeah. Just don't say Nirvana. (laughs) (laughs) One interview that I saw with him, he was talking about his kids, and they're, like, old enough to know now. Yeah. And they, like, ask him about Kurt, and, like, he said he's, like, really just now getting to where he can hear Nirvana songs and not, like, feel shitty. Yeah. I thought that's hard. That would be, like, super weird, because, of course, his kids are going to eventually know about Nirvana. Well, right. So, you know, he, of course, had to know it was coming. And I can't imagine, like, what that felt like the first day his kid's like, Dad, what, what's up with Nirvana? Who was Kurt? Yeah. What do you tell him, you know? Yeah, that's rough. Dang. Um, there was a time that Dave broke his leg during a performance, but still finished the show sitting in a chair and then went on to finish the entire tour. Mm-hmm. So that's badass. Yeah. Most artists would have just canceled everything. And everybody would have understood, obviously. Right. I mean, but I mean, nowadays artists cancel because they have, a, you know, a rash. Get a paper cut. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Chris has said in an interview that he regrets that he didn't do more to prevent Kurt from killing himself. I think that's typical. Well, of course. Um, there, this is a quote from Chris. There's anger, there's regrets. I was angry. It's just a waste. You know, it was the fucking drugs. It's pretty bad. All in 2020 hindsight, you know, Kurt called me the first, Kurt called me the first time he did heroin and told me that he did it. And I told him, don't do it, man. You're playing with dynamite. Nirvana's former manager, Danny Goldberg, claims that Kurt Cobain was murdered. Oh, claimed that the Kurt Cobain was murdered theory is ridiculous. Um, And this is a quote from Danny. He said, he killed himself. I saw him the week beforehand. He was depressed. He tried to kill himself six weeks earlier. He'd talked and written about suicide a lot. He was on drugs. He got a gun. Why do people speculate about it? The tragedy of the loss is so great, people look for other explanations. I don't think there's any truth at all to it. Which is a very understandable, like, way to feel about this, you know? Yeah. And honestly, even 
watching the documentary, reading this love and death book, going through all of the things, I don't think there's a definitive answer. I'm still on the fence about it because, you know, people who are close to him, like his manager and his bandmates, none of them were were surprised. And I think that's telling, you know, he was clearly a tortured person and drug addictions are, you know, so am I saying he didn't kill himself? No. Am I saying that he was absolutely murdered? No. I'm saying that they did not look into this as they should have. Right. It's just, like, weird enough to speculate that he might not have killed himself. Exactly. When there are, you know, just a few inconsistencies, and then you have people that are like, hey, why didn't you follow up on this? Yeah. You know? Um, we're going to end the conspiracy section before we wrap up with a quote from the article, My Time with Kurt Cobain by Michael, what the fuck is his last name? Azarad. Azarad from The New Yorker. And this is the quote. Another antagonist was Kurt himself, the self that he hated and wanted to die. In Legends, the protagonist is supposed to vanquish the antagonist. That didn't happen this time. Or perhaps it did. That one really fucking got me, dude. <laughs> when I, when I sad read, as fuck. That article uh, in the New Yorker, my time with Kurt Cobain, is fucking excellent. First of all, but also this quote when I read it, I was just like, "Oh my!" <laughs> yeah, it's it's a uh, yeah. Sometimes a writer can write one line, and you're just like destroyed by it. Like, sheesh. Whoa. All right. That sums up the entire thing. Yeah. But, um, obviously, we've kind of given our final thoughts on this, but um, Nirvana leaves behind them a huge legacy, of course. Right. Um, They're they're one of the most well-known bands to ever exist. Everyone has heard of them. Yes. A hundred percent. So it's crazy that they were only a band for five years and only had three albums and their legacy is what it is. So it's crazy. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2014, which was the first year they were eligible. I mean, they should. Which is absolutely crazy for a band that was a band for like four years. Yeah. So. Yeah. So crazy. Um, Kurt was included in the Rolling Stone 100 Greatest Songwriters of All Time, 100 Greatest Guitarists, 100 Greatest Singers, and MTV ranked him 7th in 22 Greatest Voices in Music. Um, In 2006, Hit Parader placed him 20th on their list of 100 Greatest Metal Singers of All Time, so kind of out of left field. but Yeah, definitely. So that's it on Kurt. What do you think? Does anyone have an opinion on whether or not Kurt was murdered or whether he did actually kill himself? I bet there is a very small amount of people that think about this. You know what? That is true. But if you are one of them, we would definitely like to know. I would like to think that people who listen to our podcast are in the group of people who wonder about this. But I mean... 
honestly, when it comes to some of the, like, conspiracy-ish theories, mm-hmm. you don't ever think, like, did Kurt Cobain actually kill himself? That's true. So, unless you're just, like... I mean, I have wondered this question at various times in my life. Right. Even not, like, doing this podcast. But if you, you, know. if you don't listen to it... Right, that's true. It's out of sight, out of mind. It, it absolutely is. People who are not fans of Nirvana aren't walking around like, damn, did Kurt really kill himself? There might be people listening that, like, know who Nirvana is, but haven't ever really thought about that he's actually dead, for one. Right, right. So, we might have fucked some people up today. Yeah. How many of you guys are super fucked up now? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Nirvana. Now, we could probably continue talking about this for a really long time. Let's not. Yeah, I have to finish dinner and I have to like run to CBS. So, oof. I have to pick up some pictures. That's I'm going to my mom's to eat chicken and dumplings. Hell yeah. Yeah. I also have to pick up some ham to put in the fucking potatoes. Ham. So, anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed this double feature. Yeah. That for sure. you're getting. Um, since we were gone for two weeks, you get an extra long episode. Mm-hmm. This is not our longest, though. To be fair, this is not our longest. <laughs> I think, no. I think maybe, like, Roanoke somehow is longer than this. <laughs> Dude, I don't think... I, I haven't listened to Roanoke in a hot minute. You know what? One of our best. You know what we should do? Let's let's re-listen from Ep 1 up. As a, as a crew? Yeah. I laugh a lot when I listen to our podcast at my desk to ourselves because I'm like, God damn it, we're funny. <laughs> I do the same thing. I'm like, I'm like, wow. Are these old? No, they're. I made them Friday. They I, are. Why did I just? Oh, it's because the computer's been yeah. open. They're so good. They're the like pre-cut Pillsbury cookies. These always slap. These and the Hell pumpkin yeah. ones. So good. I mean, they taste the fucking same. Well, yeah, they're just sugar cookies, but... Now that I've crunched into the... It's an ASMR moment. Chew right into the mic a little. Hold on. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna leave that in there. You guys are fucking welcome. Yeah, you got that for free. Yeah, that's the kind of shit you usually charge for, so... Mm-mm. You're welcome. Okay, so... Oh. I have to say one more thing. <laughs> so loud. <laughs> um, before we sign off about the very last weird thing that I discovered in this story is... There is audio of Courtney... Reading Kurt's suicide note to a group of fans. Ew. First and foremost, just simply that is weird. There's no reason that you should do that. No. That's fucking disrespectful. He ne- he didn't, in the suicide note, there's not even a to my fans or anything. He wrote this quote unquote suicide note to his childhood imaginary friend Boda. Not to his fans. So he definitely did not intend for that to be read to an audience. That's so fucked up. Not only did she do that, but while she's reading it, and we, I can pull a clip and we can insert it like after this little discussion potentially, or we could put it on the Insta. Either way, 
she'll read a line and then, like, call Kurt an asshole. Okay. You, what the fuck is happening? When I heard it, and she's, like, obviously putting, she's obviously crying, or it sounds like she's crying or getting emotional or whatever, but what are you doing? The love of your life, your husband, the father of your child, has been killed either by himself or someone else. Who knows? He's dead now. He's dead. And you're reading this letter he wrote in private to an audience of his fans. And you're also interjecting calling him a fucking asshole. And saying, like, fuck you. Yeah. No, you could... Like, I have lost people to suicide, and while you are angry as fuck at them, you are angry at them in private. Yes. Yeah. Not to a... Not as a speaker. To a group of people. You should not be performing for a crowd. No. That what the entire the the whole thing is very performative. It's such a spectacle, and she created more of a spectacle around Kurt's death. Absolutely, had had to put that in there. But anyway, so this is that's all we have for you. Um, big thanks to the creative team behind behind this podcast, Ariel and Laura. Yeah. Please, you know, do all the things you typically do. Subscribe, share, rate, review, socials, blah, blah, blah. And also, while you're out here doing all that stuff, be kind. And stay weird. Okay, goodbye. Bye.